welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Kona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Coming up on a Really Good Enough Parent podcast, I am excited to share with you my dear friend, adoption attorney, single mom, Michelle M. Hughes. Michelle is a practicing lawyer in the Chicago area where she was born and raised. Uh, She is the proud single mother by choice to an amazing young man, and she has spent her life professionally and personally dedicated to helping parents, adoptive parents, single moms, biracial families, adoptees, um, as an advocate and attorney. So stay tuned for a really good enough parent podcast with my special guest, Michelle M. Hughes. Really Good Enough Parent Podcast. I am so excited to have today uh, Michelle M. Hughes, Principal Attorney of Michelle M. Hughes Law Firm. I met Michelle years ago and have been trying to get her on the podcast. She's an extremely busy working mother, lawyer, advocate for many. So um, really glad that she was able to make time today. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation about parenting. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So um, let's start by saying a little bit about what's happening right now today for you. Uh, You were in court today representing some families in adoption. I assume something related to adoption because that's your main. That is correct. And you've got a 13 year old son who's somewhere there at home hanging out. That is correct. Uh, (laughs) You know, he's doing what most 13 year olds do, living on the computer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a curse and a blessing at times when we need to get stuff done. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I try to think of it as it's 2023 and this is what children do. That's a really important perspective when we perseverate about all the horrible things that technology and the internet bring to our children's lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's important to remember that we also are part of an evolving world and we can't put our heads too deeply into the sand. So, um, 
I often do find that people want to pretend like it's 1980 or 1990 and say, you know, I'm not going to let my kids have that. And I just can't imagine not allowing him to have some screen time and figure out how to navigate all this stuff because that is that's where our world is going. So, yeah. And this is one of my favorite topics that I won't divert us to too greatly right now. But I am a huge advocate of, you know, minimal screen time and go out and be bored and figure things out and all that. But like you say, we cut our kids off from a really crucial part of their social life um, if we don't allow them to connect with kids that way. And they need to keep up with what's happening in the world. And unfortunately, that's where most of the world is coalescing right now. So it's a good point you make. Thank you. Um, I like to start with how we grew up and what, what we bring to our parenting deal. Is there anything you want to share about your own childhood or background, Michelle? Well, I guess for me, the main thing is that my parents were interracially married. And they were interracially married prior to the loving decision. Um, and so that shaped my whole perspective on parenting and race. Um, I grew up in an era where I thought because they were interracially married um, that we were sort of weird, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, different, maybe different is the appropriate term. And then when I went away to college and I met other people, I mean, in the sense that I was living with other people um, and meeting people not that were just down the street that you always knew, but um, new dorm mates and so on and so forth. I was like, wow, I'm living with Ozzy and Harriet um, to reference a show long before my time. But then I started realizing my parents were really very traditional you know, they were the married parents who we had dinner at the dining room table every night. We went to church every Sunday. Um, you know, they slept in the same bedroom. It was not, it was just so traditional that I hadn't really realized how traditional it was because people told you it was not traditional because of their interracial marriage. So that also shaped how I viewed race in the world. Um, you know, I think that I'm a very logical person. So to me, I was a part of both of my parents' racial background and, um, just family too. Um, and so that really shaped who I was. And then as an adult, I really started doing a lot of biracial advocacy, um, but also social stuff too, um, I grew up where, with the exception of my siblings, I do have two siblings, that I rarely met other biracial people. So I was going to solve that problem. Um, and I started going to a um, group in Chicago called the Biracial Family Network. It had multiracial families. I didn't feel like it totally served my purposes because it was a lot more interracial uh couples married with younger kids. I did serve on the board at one point though, but it didn't completely serve my purpose. So then I decided, all right, let's serve, you know, let's figure out how to solve the problem. And that's when I started with potlucks that grew into parties that grew into this group called biracial, um, biracial friends. Bi what do we call ourselves? Social biracials and friends or something like that. I can't even remember what the name is because we haven't got together because of COVID recently. 
but we started having regular parties that started out as you know small potluck things that grew to pretty big events and then the group some of us within that group started um hosting the loving day parties in chicago um and then we also uh continued because BFN, Biracial Family Network, really isn't doing what they used to do. But until COVID, we were continuing the family picnics that they had every year. So I was very involved in this whole multiracial community thing. Um, from an advocacy point, I was on the board of the Association of Multi-Ethnic Americans, which now ceases to be, but was really um, very involved in the 2000 census and changing how we could identify ourselves in the census. So that shaped a lot of who I was um, and what I did. As part of the process of being biracial though, and biracial advocacy, biracial kids were disproportionately placed for adoption. So whenever we had these parties, there were always a lot of biracials that would show up that were adopted. And I remember uh, this one particular woman who showed up at one of, our, it was a great party. It was a really fabulous party. And she came in and we were talking and she's like, I found my people. And she started telling me, she's like, nobody has a story like me because, you know, I'm adopted, I'm biracial, I have white parents. Um, and I looked around the room and I was like, well, that would be her story and her story and her story and his story and his story. And that's when she was like, I found my people. Um, and That's so for amazing. me, yeah, for me, it was about connecting people. Yeah. Which, and I, and I love the idea that you being an overachiever, I'm just going to give you that title, um, <laughs> single mom lawyer, um, you know, and you see a problem and instead of just being like, oh, I wish that were different, you decide to roll up your sleeves and make it different. And that's one of the things that I really admire about you. And this is a perfect example. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's okay. Um, so yeah, I was just, but I wanted it on different levels. I didn't want it to be just about the educational or the advocacy, which certainly I've done at times. I also wanted it to be like, let's just have fun. Um, and let's be able to be in a safe place where when we don't have to walk into a room that we are um, analyzed and assessed and everybody thinks that they can determine who we are based on that and by saying that you're biracial, that you are somehow implying something more than you have parents of different races. Um, and so I really wanted that that social um, space, but I'm fine also with the, you know, what Omnia did with being able for people to mark as they wanted to mark on a box. I'm tired of marking the other box. The advocacy is great, right? Um, but they're, they're different motivations right so just to clarify for people listening and watching biracial doesn't necessarily mean black white or does it in your vernacular um it does not necessarily mean black white but i think a lot of people seem to refer to it as just black white certainly um there are other terms for other mixes like blasian for black asian blexican for black mexican um, and so there are, I know that a lot of the Asian white mixes, they don't usually use biracial, they use half, uh, they have some other terms, but it, we all have this, um, intersection where we all understand what it means to have parents that are racially 
different and culturally different. Um, and yet at the same time, there are definitely differences between a black white mix and uh, what I would call a black plus, but not white mix and another mix that doesn't include black. Right, here in Hawaii, we have, we call them hapa. I mean, most folks here are hapa, which is a blend of a variety of ethnic and racial cultural backgrounds. And it, you know, has resulted in one of the most beautiful populations ever. Um, and, you know, very few, very few, unfortunately, very few Hawaiians left who are, you know, mostly Hawaiian. Um, that's another story for another time. Okay, so you were born and raised in this sort of idyllic family with two loving parents, no pun intended, um, who, who gave you a beautiful, secure childhood, three kids, dinner every night, your parents got along enough for you to feel safe and secure and attached in your family. Does it matter whether your mom was white or black or your dad was white or black? Does that play into your story at all prominently? I don't feel it does for me. I do think it does as a generalization for biracials, right? right. I do think there is, there is a difference. Although I have to say that's not the only thing that makes it different. Um, and part of, I have a friend who once told me that he's like, I've never met an interracial couple like your parents. Um, and what he meant by that and what he said by that is that my mom, my mom happens to be white. My mom is still a very white woman. And he's like, your father is still a very black man. And he's like, usually when I meet interracial couples, one of them totally immerses themselves in the other's culture. And, you know, you really have um, a white couple or a black couple, right? And that didn't happen. They kept their own racial backgrounds and brought it to the table. So I have a very different perspective than a lot of other people I know. The other thing is a lot of times when they talk about they only have a white mom or they have a black mom and the difference, they're also talking a lot by single moms, right? So the composition of the family, yes, I had a white mom, but my black father was always very present in my life, right? Every day. <laughs> Um, and so that shapes me with both of them being in the house as opposed to having a single parent one way or the other. Um, likewise, I'm not adopted. And so that shapes me in the sense that I am with my biological parents and the intersection of their union, right? All of that goes to how you perceive being biracial. Um, I actually think where you grow up makes a huge difference too. Where right. you grew up, you grew up. Said, where? So okay. I grew up in Chicago and then we moved to the suburbs. So I spent the first eight years of my life in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, apparently it was predominantly white when my parents moved there, but by the time I have a memory, it was predominantly black due to white flight. Um, and then we moved to the suburbs and it was the flip, a predominantly white neighborhood. And I was always trying to get back to the city. Um, and once I graduated from undergrad, I got back to the city and I never left. <laughs> so I, and I craved that diversity, right? I did not want, I wanted to be in a very diverse neighborhood. Um, and so when I ended up buying a house, I actually looked for something that had a lot of diversity in it. And it's fascinating to me, as you know, I am a Facebook addict. Right. 
So it's fascinating to me to join, um, I join a lot of Chicago mommy groups. And so, you know, there's the white mommy groups, there's the black mommy groups, there's the Latina mommy groups. Yes, I'm in the Latina one too. Um, and I, I love looking at the differences of how they perceive diversity and what is a diverse neighborhood. Um, and it really comes up when people start asking about, you know, well, I want to move to such and such a location, or I want to move to the suburbs, I want to move to the city, or when they're talking about schools. And sometimes people will say things that, you know, uh, they'll ask for diversity and then people will be like, oh, my neighborhood is great. And I'm like, I look it up and I'm like, 0.2% is not diverse. Mm. Sorry. Okay. Right? Yeah. But they think they're in a diverse neighborhood. It, it's mind boggling to me. So mm. anyway, I just love to, you know, compare um, how people perceive things based on their own race. Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming you often also may get um, thought to be Latina. Is that does that happen all the time? Yeah, all the time. And actually, when I moved into my neighborhood, it was a predominantly Latino neighborhood. Um, a mix of Puerto Rican and Mexican people talk to me in Spanish all the time. Um, the neighborhood has changed over the years. So I don't get that as much, um, although my neighbors who are Latina just asked me the other day, and my Spanish has gotten really bad where the block party was, but that's like the first time I've been talked to in Spanish in my neighborhood in a long, long time. Um, but what I did discover is when I travel uh, around the city, around the country, around the world, my race changes. How is that? So, what do you mean? Well, for example, like I used to go to the Dominican Republic a lot because um, I had friends down there. And when I went to the Dominican Republic, I was always perceived in the Dominican Republic, usually as Italian. I don't know why. But what was fascinating about it is the minute I went to New York City and I landed in LaGuardia, I somehow some Dominican man would always walk up to me and they always thought I was Dominican. So I thought it fascinating that Dominican-Americans thought I was Dominican, but Dominican-Dominicans never thought that, right? Um, if I went to Puerto Rico, I was Puerto Rican. If I, um, when I was in Egypt, I was Egyptian. As long as I kept my mouth shut, right? Because you have accents and language barriers or whatever. But as long as I kept my mouth shut, people just assumed I was whatever they are. And I used to take a lot of cabs and cab drivers are from all over the world and i would have tons of conversations about you know oh you look ethiopian like i am i'm from ethiopia and we go with that conversation i've done many 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 different countries with many different cab drivers it's sort of a superpower i guess i mean i don't know for some it might be a problem to not be seen as how they see themselves but um you know, on the other hand, it could be a superpower, I guess. So with all of that, sorry, you were going to say something else? No, I was just going to say, I think it depends on your personality and if you're outgoing or not, right? And if you, it does take, um, some people do take great offense if they are misidentified. But I, you know, at this point in my life, it's been happening for so long that I'm just like, it is what it is. That is an important discussion to have, I think, as you sort of, alluded a minute ago, people have the tendency to need to 
I'm air quoting, understand and categorize people, right? Which is why so many folks, I think, are struggling with the LGBTQIA situation in our country and not understanding about gender preference or gender identity or, um, you know, the whole the whole spectrum of gender and sexual identity stuff has become very confounding to people who need things to be easily boxable, easily understood, and they're not willing to suspend or face their own ignorance or suspend their own need to, to quote again, understand. I don't know that there is actually deeper understanding when you're able to label somebody, but I think that's part of the current problem is that we want to know, what are you? Who are you? Where do you come from? You know, what's your race? And as you said, it's not, not usually that simple. Yeah, I think you can make generalizations, but, you know, each, each individual is an individual, That's you know, and they have their own perspective and there are so many nuances to that. But yeah, I can make a generalization about a group of people, um, but would it be true for everyone in that group? Obviously not. Right. And I think people... I love to get in the weeds, as I like to say, or get into the nuances, and a lot of people can't get there. So, you know, they just make an assumption about if you fit into this category, it's this broad sweeping thing. And I'm like, yeah, but what about this group and that group? And I would argue that goes for social economics, too. Yeah, everything that impacts how we live, right? Of course. So moving on then with this whole background, you decided to become a mother. I did. (laughs) And it was interesting, actually, this is something because as a biracial person, people always asked me if I was adopted because biracial people were disproportionately placed for adoption. Right. And so your natural reaction is like, no. Right. And then you become an adoptive parent and you don't want that to follow with that. So it was it was an interesting dance when I adopted my son. Yes, I chose to be a single mom by choice, um, and I now have a teenager. And I so want to talk about that. I want to get back to one thing you said just now, though, because I think it's an important note, and that is you mentioned a few times that there is an overrepresentation in adoption of children who are biracial, and I don't want there to be any assumptions made about that is because the people who give birth to these children are less capable, willing, healthy, mentally strong. I would assume it's because society does not support biracial relationships. And so there are inherent challenges more often in the unity of that couple. And that will impact someone's ability to raise up that child or not. I think that's definitely true, especially in the past. Um, so my peers and you know people 20, 30 years younger than me, although I have to say even within the last been a while when I first started practicing I heard it a lot more but I would literally hear like grandpa in the background don't bring that mixed race child using a different term um you know into this household and so and I also have a lot of friends who are biracial adoptees who have actually done the reunion thing because they are from the era of closed adoption and what they did discover is that the grandparents were not supportive of the uh of the mom parenting. So I think that's definitely true that society had put a lot of pressures on a lot of people not to parent, Um, you know, and that's, people assume then when you're biracial that of course your parents can't be together. 
Um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to debunk that myth um, because my parents were together. My parents were together until my parent, until my father passed away. Um, and so then I had to be careful how I tried to debunk that one myth so that I wasn't promoting another myth um, with regards to adoption. So it was a balancing act. Wow. Okay. Because being a parent isn't hard enough. Now you got to, now you got to do all this other stuff. So let's hear about your amazing son and you decided uh, to become a, to be a mom and to do it as a single mom. I did. Um, you know, things didn't work out in the romantic way that I would have liked them to work out. Um, you know, <sighs> so I'll just leave it at that. Um, and so I got to that point in my life where I decided I was, uh, had to decide how I wanted to be a mom. And I actually had talked about adoption as a possibility as, you know, junior high, I guess, maybe even before that. Um, our family had friends who had adopted. I actually, you know, my junior high best friend was adopted. So it wasn't a new concept to me. Um, and so it was on the perspective of what, how do I want to become a mom? Um, and as an adoption attorney, I knew the ins and outs. Um, when I first started thinking about it, but I wasn't ready, I actually mentioned it to a couple of people and I had like three offers of kids within like 36 hours. And I was like, wait, wait, that's too much, right? Uh, and I wasn't ready and it, it took me like another four years before I buckled down and was um, prepared and ready to adopt my son. And, you know, now he's here and I couldn't imagine life without him. But I have to say, I have an amazing village. Mm -hmm. Okay. How does that, how does that figure into your daily life? Share some of that with people who may be afraid of the idea of a village. It takes a village. We're just going to say it. It takes a village. And that is, you know, sort of proven through exhaustive research on who the healthiest, happiest children are and who the healthiest, happiest parents are. Uh, we can't do this alone. We need to be able to say help and I need you and I'm having a hard day. And how does that show up in your life with your son? It shows up in a lot of different ways. So my parents were very much there for me when um, my son was very little. Um, and they actually babysat him one day a week. Um, and so, it's, and as you have probably discovered, childcare is ridiculously expensive. Um, so that totally helped out. I had another friend whose wife made him, he was unemployed at the time. So his wife was like, you will go over to her house on Thursdays and take care of it. So he came over every Thursday and he babysat my son. Um, and then I had other days covered by other ways. So I had this, this group of people who helped me out. But I also had all these friends who descended to help out. Um, and one of my closest friends, we call him his my son's godfather now. Um, and his daughter, his god sister, um, she was, you know, I don't know, she was probably 14 when, hmm, that's not right. She was younger than that when um, I brought him home. But we would always do things together. So, you know, whether it's going to the museum, this, that, or whatever. But it's nice because I can send him with either one of them to go do stuff. And he was a very strong presence as a male in my son's mm -hmm. life. Mm 
Um, I was thinking about this the other day, one, because of an article I saw on Facebook and two, because of discussions with friends of how many great black male friends have stepped up to the plate to be there for my son. Not only his godfather, who, by the way, is an adoptee too, and that works out great because if my son doesn't want to talk to me about adoption, he can talk to his godfather and they have that type of relationship where they can discuss stuff. And my son has seen me and his godfather discuss things about his adoption. And so it makes it an open topic. Mm -hmm. um, but also, like I was, I was talking to another friend of mine the other day, and he's planning to get some car and redo the car, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, and your son will be there to help me. And I'm like, that's fine by me. He may not want to be there, but I will drop him off, <laughs> uh, you know, because that gives him more time. Or I had another friend of mine, um, Uncle David, who taught my son how to ride a bike. You know, so I have these these really great men in my life. Last night, we went to dinner with another male friend of mine, black male friend of mine, who has been in my son's life since very early on. Um, and we all went for sushi. These men are always around um, giving wisdom to my son. And I personally, I am not the one who thinks the gender has no place. Right. I understand gender is complicated and everybody may not necessarily fall in male or female, but I do think that um, there is a male gender. I do think that it is more than society and culture and how we, um, and how that develops. You know, I do think there are some genetics that has something to do with it and testosterone. And so there are things that I think it is important for my son to be exposed to and people for him to be exposed to. And I love having multiple men in the sense that they um, give him different perspectives of being a black man. So your son is black? My son is black. Okay, yeah. And I think, you know, just super important, obviously, for him to have black role models, for him to have male role models, but especially Given, yes. uh, given how black males in our world and our society are targeted, um, just for him to have as much of that positive energy around him to build him up is so important. So thank you for noting that. He does. Um, and I have female friends, too, that have always been there for him, you know. So that's a whole other story. But I'm, at the moment, I'm thinking about the men who have stepped up to the plate with regards to the village. And, and in ways I, you know... I didn't necessarily expect or ask for, but they're there. And I have to say some of his friends' parents have been that way too. Mm -hmm. That's great. And good for you for not feeling like you needed to have a death grip on your son because often I think the parenting, um, one of the parenting missteps is when we feel we have to control and possess um, all aspects of our children's life so, <clears throat> so uh, intensely that we don't want to share their time, their experiences, and that's when they miss out because, you know, having this village to raise you allows you to have so many more perspectives and there is no such thing as too much love, right? A child can't experience too much love. The more love, the better. Um, and the more love, the better. And also different people have different skills. Like I have no interest in IT at all, except for Facebook. But that's not really IT, that's social media, right? <laughs> I have no interest in IT at all. And his godfather is uh, an IT specialist. 
So he learns IT from him. And, you know, now sometimes he's like, mom, that's the router. That's not the, you know, motor. But da, da, da. And I'm like, I don't care. Fix it. Right. right. And so he gets these skills from other people, whether, you know, whether they love him or not, I think that is great that he has exposure. And I actually have always felt that I want my child. So I have been active in a variety of different things throughout his life. Right. And I still go out periodically and, you know, with friends and stuff. Sometimes I take my son, sometimes I don't. Um, but I want him to grow up as a person. I know he wants to be a parent, but I want him to also be a well-rounded human being um, that is not all about just parenting, right? Mm -hmm. I want him to see me as a full person. Yes, I'm his mom, but I also do other things. And when he grows up, yes, he will be a dad, but he can also have other interests besides just being a dad and being a full home being a complete well-rounded human being and maybe some of those interests he'll share maybe he won't yeah no our, our kids need to see us as people who take care of ourselves basically right we yeah. we should not look like we've forsaken all of our own needs just to be 100 percent parents and i feel like scared if you do that because when he is old enough to leave right I don't want him to be sticking around because, oh my God, mom needs me. And, you know, I want him, I, I'm trying to give him the wings that he can go out and whether it's college or something else that he goes and does his thing, right? He always will have a soft place to land here, but I want him to go do his thing and not to be concerned about me. And, you know, I see too many parents who have given everything to their kids. They have no friends. You know, and I'm just like, I don't understand that concept. Or interests or ability to keep themselves occupied with passion projects. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I love my son. I love spending time with my son, um, you know, but at the same time, I need him to have his wings. Right. And truthfully, he doesn't always want his wings. <laughs> He's still up in his... Bobby, I'm going to stay with you forever. And I'm like, no. Oh, but that's, yeah, it's flattering, but it, I'm sure it'll change when he gets a little older. High school will probably be a big shift for him, right? He's got another year and then. One would think, but I don't know. I mean, sometimes he'll talk about like, you know, we'll, we'll have houses on the same block and uh, then we'll be close, but not in the same house. Um, and that would work. I'm okay with that. Um, and then I'll be easy for babysitting, right? No, does he already talk about being a parent in that like that kind of an intense way or he's already saying I'm oh gonna yeah wow he at about the age of two he started talking about he wanted to be a dad um and periodically he has talked about you know how many kids he wants that's not consistent um sometimes it's more sometimes it's less um and until recently he pretty much has always had a girlfriend since he was two Wow. So, can I just say, like, to me, that says that you have done a really good enough job, and I can only say a really good enough job because that's the name of the podcast, but I want to say something even more, like, you've done an extraordinarily really good enough job um, because you're modeling. You're his role model for parenting. So if he really wants to be a parent that badly, it's got to be solely because, or at least dominantly because of the influence you've had on him as his parent. 
So good for you. So with that, <laughs> with your extraordinary parenting skills that have influenced your son at a young age to want to be a parent, what are some thoughts you might be able to share about things you've done really well, things you haven't done so well, things that you are glad you figured out before it was too late in the parenting realm? So I think that I have a mixed feelings about about getting him involved in so many activities. Um, I so when when he was little, I would drag him everywhere, right? Um, to the point where recently I got mommy. I don't want to go to any more museums. Okay. Um, <laughs> so. You know, and I'm still at the point where I want to drag him to art galleries and I want to drag him to festivals and he's like enough. Right. Um, so in some ways I did really well with that. In other ways, I realized that at some point it tapered off, too. Um, and, you know, I can respect him not wanting to go to museums, but I really still want him to go to music and art festivals and stuff like that. And he's sort of done with it. Um, I think that I probably, you know, putting adults in his world besides me, I think I did a really good job at. So there are people that he can talk to. I think I also did a really good job um, when he was little. Um, there's a group that I helped organize, I guess is the best way. I did start it, but I helped organize it for single moms by choice. And this is a, I mean, I'm in some online groups, but this was one where we literally get together. And when he was little, you know, we got together a lot more when they were little, but we did all the birthday parties and we go to the beach and, you know, there's a point where we were all going to the water park once a year. And so putting that connection together with these other adoptive kids, all by single mom by choice families. Um, really helped in being able to allow him to know he was not the only one. Um, I also think I did a really good job in giving diversity in his life. So once he, you know, once my hodgepodge nanny babysitting situation ended, um, I put him in daycare and I selected daycare really um, based on diversity. Um, and also the attempt to make him bilingual, bilingual, which failed, mind you. But okay. <laughs> that's a different story. The thought that um, counts. Pardon me? It's the thought that counts. He'll yeah, look back on that and he'll say, my mom really wanted me to be bilingual. She really put her effort into it. It was, it was a good effort, mom. He'll feel the love. It's okay. I hope so. Well, the daycare closed, so I had to switch him to a different daycare. Although, ironically, he is in a language academy now, and he's been taking a language for seven years, which he absolutely hates. Different language than what he started out with, and one that I don't think is going to continue. But So I keep trying, right? Um, but at the daycare, when I selected the daycare, it was not a neighborhood daycare. So I made sure that I, I drove out of the neighborhood. Yes, it was very close, but it still added, you know, whatever, another 20, 30 minutes to my day. But it was invaluable to make sure that he had other kids at the daycare that were um, people of color, right? That's not to say he didn't have white friends there, because he did. Um, but he also had people of color there. And 
I made friends there. So um, there is a group of, there's two young ladies from daycare that we refer to as his sisters because we have all kept in touch. And for him, they are his sisters. They're not girls. Yes, I know they're girls, but they're not girls, right? They're not girlfriends. They're not, they are his sisters, right? And he treats them differently than he treats other girls that he's friends with, right? Um, so things like that, like really reaching out and exposing him to the world, I think I did a really good job. Um, but at the same time, like I look back now and I'm in this group on playgrounds and I'm like, oh my God, all the playgrounds that we didn't really experience. And I haven't really worked, even though I was very athletic, um, I didn't work really well with him being very athletic. Now, part of it is he has no interest for the most part, but I really regret that we didn't do something very consistently um, to involve athletics into our lives. And my athletics sort of tapered off once I became a parent. Before I became a parent, I was like, I'm going to get, I was taking Hapkido. I'm going to go to the Hapkido studio and I'll just put him in the stroller and he'll sleep while I take my lesson at 630. That concept died real fast when I realized I wasn't getting any sleep. And that was the end of Hapkido, right? Um, and I also used to play basketball. And nobody could keep that child entertained. I would bring someone with, and he started running out into the court with 10 adults. I played co-ed basketball, running down the court, and you'd get this little two-year-old, mommy, mommy, that was the end of basketball. Because I was like, that's not going to work real well. So my athletics disappeared, and I, even though I loved it, I did not pass that on to him, and I regret that. So I want to make you feel better because that's what I like to do. So I was not athletic as a child and I became an athlete. I consider myself a quasi-athlete, an athlete-ish person now. And I didn't discover athletics really until my 30s. So there's still hope for him. There's still hope. I hope so. Maybe he'll become like I a... I keep trying. <laughs> I keep trying. I keep putting him in different lessons. I put him in sailing this summer. Uh, that failed miserably. He has nothing positive to say about sailing. Um, so next up, pickleball. Pickleball is easy. He'll love pickleball. Everyone loves pickleball. He's actually requesting because pickleball was in, they played it in school. So he's like, you can put me in pickleball. So now I got to find him some pickleball lessons. Um, but I also have to maneuver it around some of the academic stuff that is coming up this year because it's a big year for testing for my child. And big city schools, you know, you have to test, um, Testing helps you get into a better school. Let me put it that way. It is not the end all be all, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Oh boy. All those pressures of the academics. So let's talk about how you approach academics with your son. Things you are glad you did, things you wish you had done differently. I know for so many parents, academics are so stressful. And, uh, you know, my own attitude with my children has been, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. If you, you know, get through with C's, but your mental health is intact, then I'm cool. Um, you know, I don't tend to be a parent who worries about getting into an Ivy League college. In fact, I'm not sure I would want that for my kids. Um, it doesn't necessarily help. Yeah. So Although how that's you, not what they say. 
I'm pretty relaxed about the academics, surprisingly. Um, but I, you know, I do wish I would have got my test, my child tested a little bit earlier. Um, I think it would have helped him. On the other hand, I waited for him to get tested. And it turned out I had him tested within the school system the year that I had the right teacher. So my lesson is pick the right teacher um, because I was able to get whatever minutes that I needed for him um, because I had the support system around me. That and I was, I was very involved in his school too. Um, so I find that a lot of people are fighting for minutes and, you know, I was like, they gave me more than I expected. And, you know, people are like, that's because you're always up at the school. And, you know, I did my time as a PTO officer. I showed up at PTO meetings. I was on, you know, the coffee parent coordinator um, and a variety of other things at the school. And, you know, I mentioned I knew lawyers who sue schools when you don't get what you want. Um, and somehow I got it a little bit, right? Um, so, <laughs> Yeah. So I wish I would have done it a little bit earlier because it's it's harder to catch up when you do it later. Um, but he has had some amazing special ed teachers. Um, and so he's doing really well and getting really good grades. And he's very um, he's a very chill individual, but he's self-motivated. So it's allowed me to back off a little bit. Um, he I don't have to tell him to do his homework. He will do his homework, right? He may not do it at the time I want him to do it, um, but he will do his homework. And so I don't have to, to worry about stuff like that, which is probably good because academics came really easy for me. And I think he struggles somewhat, mm -hmm. um, but I'm laid back. If he doesn't get into one of the top schools in Chicago, it's okay. I just want him to get into a school that will support him and that will um, help him with his academics and will be safe, right? Um, and that's, and I'm also looking for diversity and trust me, that is hard to find um, once I'm bumping up to high school, that's a big problem to find that combination. Um, and I realize that sometimes going to a school that's not the top school he can excel and rise to the top. So I've watched uh, one of my nephews, for example. It's a whole long story. Uh, his parents were sort of hands off. He ended up different city, but he basically ended up in a school that has a really lousy reputation. And he has just thrived, right? And because he had come from a, a good K through eight school, um, they spotted him immediately, put him in extra programs, you know, he's an ambassador for the school, you know, they take their 30 kids that they know that they can really make them fly and got pushed into that. And so I also realized part of this is a game because if you send your kid to the really, really best school, you're competing with the really, really best kids and somebody has to be at the bottom of those kids. So sending him to a school that is not quite as great might allow him to be at the very top 5% of his class because he is good with what he does. And he's a very smart kid. You know, um, he has some reading difficulties. Uh, but if he hears it 
he remembers it, he digests it, he analyzes it, and he has something to say about it. So he's been diagnosed so, with dyslexia or not sure? Um, the diagnosis didn't come, we all thought it was dyslexia. Uh, the diagnosis came back with something slightly different, but it basically has the same parameters is okay. what is the problem. So dysgraphia, yeah. dyscalculia, like they're all part of the, often this, the awareness spectrum that might, okay. But what, what I'm noting about what you're saying is that we assume often if we're not fully conversant in how the schools work, that our children will be identified, that their needs will be, you know, either screened for or that there will be some curiosity on the part of the school to figure out what our kids need and then get them tested. But what I'm hearing from you is let's make sure to be our children's advocate in the schools because we should never assume that the school will be able to, will have the time or interest or ability or whatever to know who the kid is and what they need. I think all of that is true, but I was also worried about the whole racial piece of it too. I did not want my child to be uh, labeled um, based on historical stuff and kids being labeled as, especially black boys being labeled as uh, behavior having behavior disorders, which my child does not have any behavior disorders. His teachers love him to death. I'm like, I need to get references now because he's just that people person that, oh, he's so lovely to have in class. Um, so I really didn't need to worry about that. But I also was worried I didn't, because I was in a very diverse school, I really didn't want him also to be like, you know, with all the black kids in, in special ed. As it turns out, I should have been more concerned with all the boys in special ed. Um, and it was his class has a huge number of boys that are in special ed, white boys, Latino boys, black boys, Asian boys, they're all there. Right. Um, and so that, but I was wrapped up in that concern and I didn't want him to have that until I absolutely knew that he needed that. Um, he needed it. The teachers were phenomenal. They still are phenomenal. And they're actually, this year, we're pulling him back into general ed because of that. So it's been a good thing. Yeah. It, it concerns, oh, the door opened. Hello. <laughs> that was a love you, mom. From the, I don't know if you saw the door open. I just heard love you, mom. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so, you're talking about him right now. Um, yeah, he heard me talking about him. And so yeah. he's like, I'm going to go find out what's going on. But he, you know, his teachers have been really good. And he's he really is really smart. So it's working with that disability um, to make it come out. Yeah. And I just, I feel the need to say, because whenever this comes up, I just get so sad and unhappy about how many kids are, are misdiagnosed with ADHD or, you know, as being disruptive when in fact they're traumatized, they're dealing with some sort of, you know, whatever it is, it's got them distracted. They're not rotten mm -hmm. to the core. They're not, you know, disruptive. They're, they're grieving, they're traumatized, they're distracted, they're confused, whatever it is. Like, I just hope that we are moving in the direction of taking more time to get to know the kids who are, you know, the disruptive ones, because I think often in there are the real gems who just need to be dusted off and hugged and helped a little more. Um, but, you know, good point that getting testing, getting accurate, specific testing will always help your child to be placed in the correct situation. Um, so I'm going to pop that up. 
I will also say that I do think that he probably should have got tested the year before. Um, and I do think there was, you know, there was my racial piece, but there was also the teacher of that year's racial piece who I think that racism played a little bit into that um, and not having him tested that year. Um, but in the end, I was really glad that it wasn't that teacher and it was the next teacher because I'm not sure she would have supported him like the following year's teacher who was amazing. Right. So how right. people see our kids and make decisions about who our kids are based on how they look um, is really important. And also, and for parents listening, we're trying to raise up children who are going to be, you know, model citizens, helpful, loving, inclusive, um, you know, focused on diversity and equity. And so, you know, even if you're raising a child who's in the major majority, who has no problems, hopefully we're raising kids to be aware and sensitive and supportive of everyone around them. Right. I will say that his school does a really good job of that. I mean, there's been a couple of teachers that I've been up, I've not been a big fan of, right? And because of the way the structure is, you can't always get rid of those teachers. But as a whole, I would say his school is amazing. Um, it's very diverse. And the support that um, the kids have for each other, maybe it's just his class, I don't know but they really are supportive of each other. Now I will say, I hear the boys are, you know, I, I talk to the boy moms, I don't really talk to the girl moms. And on the rare occasion I talk to the girl moms, I hear stories that are somewhat scary. Um, but when I talk to the boy moms, I just, there's this, this collectiveness that I wish that all kids could benefit from. Um, and they've had kids in their class who, you know, have much more serious, um, uh, learning disabilities and or um, other disabilities and the kids rally around them and are still make it inclusive for them. And so I think that that's been great. Um, and I hope that it will continue when he goes to high school, but finding that place where people are considerate, I don't know, we'll, we'll find out. Um, but I think the base is there. Yeah, the culture, overall, the culture has been really good. Um, I've been pleased with it. But it's one of those things that, like, I'm in this process. And I, the next three months is, like, ground zero of figuring out the high school stuff. And the way our high schools, the way our city works, you get to bid for schools, right? It's not like you go to your local high school. And so it's tours. It's testing. It's test prep. It's all this stuff, but for me, the culture is really important, both that he'll have solid academics, he'll have diversity, he'll have a warm, nurturing culture, that there will be kids that, you know, if they have um, disabilities or differences, that people still are like, hey, how you doing? What do you, you know, can we, can we sit at the lunch table together? That's the culture I want for my child. I'll be sending you um, lots of positive support because I can't imagine how difficult this is going to be for you, but I'm sure you'll figure it out and he'll land in the right place. Uh, he's lucky. Yeah, to have I have a backup plan. Worst plan, I'll, you know, I'd like suburbs or homeschool, right? But I really don't want to do either one of those. I don't think they're appropriate for him. Um, so we'll see what happens. You've got to. He is my city kid. He loves the city just like I love the city. So it works out really nicely that we can do things like that. Um, and 
you know, at the heart of it is that I, he still likes to do things with me or other people. He just needs, it has to be something he's interested in now, Mm -hmm. right? It can't just be like, okay, mommy's decided we're going to do this. You know, it doesn't work. He's like, I don't care about trains anymore. Right. There was a time where I, yeah, there was a time where I could be like, let's go to, you know, there's actually a national train day. So when he was little, I would find things and he'd get up on Saturday and he'd be like, what are we doing today? And I'm like, there's a national train day. We're going to the you know union station and we're going to do whatever they have to do. Right. He's now it has to be something that he has an interest in. Otherwise, he doesn't want to do it. Well, yeah, and it's I think it's Good. It's normal yeah, and good I, for you for honoring his preferences because that's not always easy. Yeah, well, I have a, but what I've discovered is one of his really good friends wants to do the stuff I want to do, and he'll go if I invite the friend. So, I, you know, this is now I'm coordinating with his friend because his friend doesn't do it with his family. So his friend is like, all right, I'm like, so, you know, I got my ways. Yeah. Because I want him to get out. Yeah, you know, and he's got really nice friends. So um, I was talking to his friend this Saturday, and we were talking about several different classmates and getting together and all going hiking together. So hopefully we can get it together before school starts. And I'm okay if I have to drag five boys to go hiking so I can go hiking. I'm good with it. Sounds like a fun time to me. So um, Mm -hmm. before we wrap up, because we're almost out of time, I'm just curious if you have any final thoughts about parenting. And I, I realize we didn't talk much about all the tremendous work you've done building families through adoption law and all the families you've helped and supported in your work. And we'll make sure to have in the show notes um, ways that people can connect with you or follow you or find um, out more about your amazing work. But in your, in your time as an adoption lawyer, I'm sure you've seen a lot of families um, and often we learn the most about what's a good parent, and what's a not so great parent by watching other people. Are there any final thoughts you have on things you've seen that have been really impressive or things you've seen that have been sort of red flags for parents? Well, as an adoption attorney, I don't really make the decision whether people get a kid or not. Thankfully, that's usually a social worker's job. Um, but I do see that, um, People who have, so I used to, I used to have this company with some friends of mine and we used to do transracial adoption education and adoption education. And I often spoke at camps, uh, adoption camps, culture camps. And one of the things that I thought that really was beneficial to parents is parents who, I mean, you could say have their village, but there were far too many parents I met who had no friends. And that always scared me um, that they literally had no personal friends. And sometimes they would, because they moved for a job, they had no family either, right? They were literally like this little island in the middle of wherever they happened to be trying to raise a kid. Um, And I think that people who can, who have a village and can ask for help when they need help are much better parents, right? Um, But if you don't have that village, then the only people you can ask for help is professionals. And some of these things are minor things, you know, that 
don't really require a professional. They just require someone who has a little bit of knowledge in a subject that is in your social circle, right? Um, and so, and some of it is stuff too that is like, you know, just racial mirrors, um, adoption mirrors, um, mirrors of people that, you know, I deal with a lot of single parent adoptions and I am shocked at how many people literally, you know, have how many, usually single women, not always, who don't know a single man, right? Or they will be a lesbian couple and they have no male friends, but they're going to raise a boy or vice versa, you know? Um, I just think it's really important that you put different people in your child's life. And with the adoption tip, um, it's even more important because to assume that they are going to have the same interests, uh, the same background, the same ability as you. I mean, I don't think any parent should be able to really be able to assume this, but it really takes it to a whole nother level when you're talking about genetics. My child does not have my genetics, right? So to assume that he is going to be identical to me is, you know, as my little mini me um, is problematic. As it turns out, in some ways, he is my little mini me, personality wise. Uh, but, but, you know, that was, I wouldn't say that's luck of the draw I, because I think there are with open adoption and people selecting you. You know, there's some stuff that comes with that that was part of why he's a little bit of my mini-me. But he's still his own unique individual self, right? Um, and I think parents have to be able to see that. I think parents have to, you know, play on their kids' strengths. Um, and too many parents, it's like, this is how it was for me, so it must be this way for my child. And one of the things I've discovered is parenting is all these things I thought I was going to do, a lot of it just went out the door. And some of the things that I thought I would never do, I'm like, oh my God, that is me. So sometimes I definitely do hear myself say things. I'm like, oh my God, I just channeled my mother or my father. Yep. Yep. I, I It just came straight out of my mouth and I can't believe it, right? Um, but other things that I was, you know, like my parents with the sun, with the dinner table every night, that didn't happen. That was my plan. It did not happen, right? Um, so some things are very different than how I was raised. And I accept it and, you know, go with the flow. Um, and I listen to him and what his needs are. Um, and I try to, you know, there are some things that it's nails on chalkboard, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't... I don't think it's because of him or the adoption. I think it's because of his age, you know, and I have to realize this is part of being a teenager and pushing away from your parents. It's a necessary right. developmental step. Absolutely. Exactly. It, but, you know, uh, I was just talking, a friend of mine was just in town and she's a therapist and she's like, as long as he's only pushing and stuff about a third of the time, you're good. And I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm good. He still enjoys so, spending time with you. He's still a happy kid. Oh, yeah. He's still all the right things. So, um, Oh, I yeah, think, he definitely does. And he's a very warm, affectionate child. Um, and we have our things that we do together um, that, you know, 
is just for us, right? And he has my love of travel. Oh, so. that's a that's a bonus right there. How exciting is that? Oh. All right. Final thoughts, Michelle, before we wrap up. Anything that you are obsessed about right now or that you want to share with people, books, podcasts, movies, I don't know, anything? I can't say that there's anything that I'm totally, you know, um, obsessed about besides Facebook, which I need to do a little less of. No, please. Uh, we all benefit from your article sharing and your thoughts. We really need you on Facebook. Um, but other than that, just, you know, my thing is to, to spend time with your children um, because they will be gone before you know it. Um, and I'm feeling very strongly about getting them in touch with nature, uh, especially after COVID and spending so much time indoors. Um, I think it's taking some concerted effort to get back outdoors, especially when I read that COVID's on the rise again, um, and to get in touch with people face to face, you know, actually going out to eat, going to a picnic, going for a walk. Um, we've gotten into this point where Zooming with each other or FaceTiming with each other has been very um, normalized. And it's great, especially when you're talking to people who are on the other side of the country or, you know, just not close, right? But I think between texting and this other technology, we're not actually engaging with each other face to face. And we need to start doing that. And we need to start helping our kids do it again. Yeah, right. absolutely. absolutely. And so I feel that's my mission now is pushing him to get out of the house and go do something with his friends as opposed to just playing video games. I'd rather he play video games with his friends in the same room. Yeah. Right. Really because important. then they also talk about other things and, you know, they got to get up and go to the refrigerator. And my son's very much into cooking. And so you know, my household often has little boys in it cooking. Love it. Um, so things like that, because it's not, you know, when you're playing a video game online, you're not going to go do that with someone else. And so getting that rhythm again of, you know, being in contact with people and touching people and talking to people and experiencing life with people is where I'm, my thought process is right now as far as parenting. And that. doing it before I have no control. Yeah. Because so it's quick. For sure. Yeah. Being together in a physical space, navigating human social dynamics, nature. I love those points. Okay. I feel like this hour flew by at rapid speed, and I, I would love to hear more. But I am going to give people a way to connect with you in the notes. So they'll see your um, LinkedIn. They'll see your website. Is it still Bridge Communications? It's Michelle M. Hughes Law also, but we'll put it all in the show notes so they can track you down and gain from your wisdom. Sounds good. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a law office website. I don't know it off the top of my head, but generally if you Google Michelle Hughes adoption attorney, you'll find me in one of the places you can reach out to me. And we'll put it all there so it will make it easy for folks. Okay, Michelle, thank you so much. This has been just really wonderful. And I love hearing about your guy. And I love seeing the door open behind you because he's back there in the background. 
right now as we do this interview, which is such a great thing. So thank you, Michelle. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been another episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.